The scripture portion in Mark's gospel this morning is chapter 15, starting in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud, and taking taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud, and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene, and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where he was laid. Well, I hope you'll keep your Bibles open with me here to the end of chapter 15 as we see this culmination of Mark, really the climax, the, where we've been going the whole time to the cross. Jesus has had his eyes set on Jerusalem, and he's known what awaits him in Jerusalem. And what awaits him in Jerusalem is not only the cross, but his death. Last week, we considered the suffering of the cross. The cross was the great endurance of great physical suffering, but the focus of the Gospel of Mark, as we saw last week, is not on the physical suffering, though it's certainly there. You can't talk about crucifixion without talking about physical suffering. But the focus of the Gospel of Mark has been upon the mockery, upon the abuse, In this, we see that the Lord has not only suffered righteous punishment for our guilt, but he's also taken our place in receiving our shame. He not only died in our place, but Jesus was rejected and Jesus was mocked in our place. That's so important for us to see in the work of the gospel. So now this week, we finally come to these final moments in the life of of Jesus, and then we continue through to the burial. There are no more important moments in all of history. This is 
the moment. This is what many of you have heard me call, particularly when we meet together in partnership course, I call this the at one moment. This is the atonement and the moment of the atonement, the moment that the death of God the Son in the place of sinners takes away guilt and takes away shame of the redeemed so that all who place their faith in this moment's sacrifice are reconciled to God and so are saved. Does that mean anything to you? Do you understand that this is our moment? This is our salvation moment that we see recorded for us in the scriptures. This is the reason that Jesus was sent from the Father, that we with all of Christ's church might be granted new life, might be granted righteousness, might have hope of eternity through the life, death, resurrection, and promised return of Jesus Christ. And this is the climax moment that we read about today. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would ground us in the historical reality, the events surrounding and the central pinnacle moment of your cry and your death. I pray this morning that you would ground us, not just theologically, not merely with a confession of faith, but with the whole of our lives finding its meaning, its ground, its hope, its life in this death. Lord, thank you for what you've done for us here. Thank you for the sacrifice of Christ. Thank you, Jesus, for what you've endured in our place. I pray that we would come to understand this morning just a little more and come to believe with an increasing faith as we've seen you do for so many, miraculously so, throughout the Gospel of Mark. Bring us to a grounded faith in the reality of who the Christ is, who is Jesus, the Son of God. We trust you that you'll actually do this by your word and your spirit at work in the midst of the congregation today. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning's a little bit complicated because really what we, wanted, what we need to do is we need to give attention to the scriptures. Like at various points when, when I'm talking here and walking us through various observations, we ought to be compelled to look down. Not look up at me, there's nothing to see here, all right? But to look down at the Bibles that are open in front of you and see something, see a variety of events that are surrounding the death of Jesus and, as we'll see, the burial of Jesus. This morning, what I want to do is I want to draw our attention in the death of Jesus to four events, four particularities that in many ways are a bit disjunct. They don't necessarily flow one to another in the passage, but Mark has recorded them for us to instruct us a bit about what is happening here at the death of Jesus. The first of these four events is darkness. Look at verse 33. When the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. From the sixth hour to the ninth hour, from roughly noon until something like 3 p.m., darkness is over the land. And darkness is a sign of judgment. Now that's a huge clue to us as to what is happening here. This isn't merely a crucifixion. This isn't merely the death of a man or even a very special man or even a, a, some sort of God the Son sort of man. This is 
an event that is surrounded by an act of judgment. Amos chapter nine, chapter eight, verse nine says this. On that day, declares the Lord, I will make the sun go down at noon and darken the earth in broad daylight. And that verse is given in the context of judgment. Over and over again throughout the scriptures, darkness, and particularly the darkening of the sun when it should shine bright, is given as a sign that there's judgment taking place on that day. Consider the ninth plague. The ninth plague in Exodus chapter 10. A sign of judgment upon the Egyptians. This is a visible sign. As, as these three men are hanging on their crosses with Jesus in the middle of these trees with a sign of accusation uh, above him, he's dying. And he's dying not under merely some sort of justice of Rome that as we've seen it is no justice at all. He's dying under a justice. He's dying under a cosmic divine Justice, a visible sign to all who were present that day that this crucifixion is a death, but it's no ordinary death. And so we ought to ask, how can this be? How is the death of Jesus taking place in the context of a judgment? Jesus is the one innocent man. Why is the wrath of God being poured out upon Jesus according to the righteous judgment of God? Now, I have to pause and say, I know many here, maybe not all, but many here are like, I know the answer to that question. You've already kind of alluded to it. We prayed it and so on. Can we just move on? We need to be grounded in this one reality. I've known this reality about the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the place of sinners my whole life. From a very young age, I I knew that this is what Jesus did. But it wasn't until in my 30s that I broke down weeping, already a pastor, by the way, for many years, already serving in Christian ministry, that I broke down weeping with the fact, wait a minute, Jesus, the innocent man, died for this guilty man. That means there's no death for me. My death, my actual death, the death that belonged to Jeremiah has already been died. And it's not gonna be died twice. He's died my death for me. Friends, this is worthy of our attention. Don't think you know. Don't, don't think, merely give assent. Don't say you can confess. Oh, these things are true. I hope they're true for you. But have you been submitted underneath of the reality in faith, in humility, before the reality of the judgment of God upon Jesus in our place. Darkness over the land. The second big event that we see take place in this passage is regarding Elijah. We see the signs of of judgment in Jesus' own words and in the response of those around him. Look at verse 34 with me. At the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, and he translates it for us, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it, behold, he's calling Elijah. Jesus cries out with the words of Psalm 22. We looked at Psalm 22 two weeks ago by actually walking through the psalm as Mark Schladorn 
preached that passage. Then we looked at Psalm 22 in action in the crucifixion. And here we see Jesus crying out with these words. He suffers the rejection of the Father. Jesus, as he bears the sins of the world, it becomes true and real in this moment that there is no rescue coming from the pain of death. And Jesus cries out. Look at verses 35 and 36. Some of the bystanders heard it saying, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And some ran and filled a sponge of sour wine, put it on a reed, and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Now, there may be mocking in that. They may be very serious. There is an expectation that Elijah would return and restore all things. And perhaps... He might even intervene to offer help in times of need. This is a man who's crying out to his God in a moment of need. Maybe Elijah will come in this moment with all the darkness happening around them. Maybe this is the moment they've been waiting for. Something's going to happen on this day. But in light of that unnatural darkness and in light of the cry and in light of the people's rush forward in expectation, maybe Elijah will come and save the day. There's silence. And Jesus suffers. And then we have a fourth event. Look at verse 38 with me. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is a fulfillment of a theme that's been taking place in Mark for many chapters now. Mark chapter 14 verse 58 says, we heard him say, this is a testimony against Jesus, we heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Jesus has been ministering in the temple, and there's this, been this theme of the interaction between Jesus and the temple, and ultimately we see Jesus make his exit from the temple and pronounce a judgment upon temple and Jerusalem. And now we see the temple and its religious system coming to an end with the the rending of the curtain to be replaced by the sacrificial work of Jesus. Friends, the work of the temple is, is a work of sacrifice, a work of atonement, and a work of worship. And now the temple has a new, the work of the temple has a new center. The curtain is torn And Jesus becomes the center of sacrifice and the center of access and the center of worship. The book of Hebrews reflects upon this work of Jesus in a variety of ways. Two passages I could point us toward. Hebrews 16, 19. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where the priests with their sacrifices entered the temple in Jerusalem. Jesus has gone into the heavenly temple and there he has worked the final work of sacrifice to secure a way for all who place their faith in him to enter. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 19 Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, you see, the center of entrance to fellowship with God is no longer through a curtain in the temple, but rather it finds its new center in the blood of Jesus by the new and living way that he opened up to us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. 
We no longer enter through a curtain into a temple. We enter through Christ, through his flesh, into the heavenly kingdom. The rending of the temple curtain is one of the most shocking events in the gospel of Mark. What happened here? This has upended everything about the worship of the people of God. And then we have this fourth event, and perhaps similarly shocking. Look, finally, we see the response of a centurion to all of these things that are taking place around him. Verse 39, when the centurion, a Roman centurion, the guy whose job it was to watch over the crucifixion of Jesus and make sure it worked, and how do you know what worked? He's dead. He's suffered greatly, and he's dead. The centurions who stood facing him saw that this is the way he breathed his last. He said, truly, this man was the son of God. The centurion saw the darkness and he heard Jesus' faith-filled anguish and his response is, truly, this man is the son of God. Note the juxtaposition, right? This man is the son of God. The only reasonable explanation that this centurion could formulate in his mind and his understanding of the world and executions and whatever theology he may have had, likely a Roman pantheism, the only thing that he could make sense of, whatever would explain what was happening on this day was not merely a Roman execution. This has something to do with the divine. This was the reasoning of a Roman soldier of rank who would preside over the death of Jesus and these two crucified men. He'd seen the death of many men and his final conclusion on this day is Jesus was not an insurrectionist. How did he come to that conclusion? Did he do a bunch of investigation on the history of Jesus and his activities and ministry? Did he, did he go back and read some record of the Sermon on the Mount? Did he investigate the witnesses? This man had seen many deaths, and here's what he knows. Insurrectionists don't die like that. There's an, he's an expert in what takes place on a cross, and insurrectionists don't die like that. There's something divine. The events that surrounded the death of Jesus are clearly unique They come together to tell a story. And the story is a story of judgment that's directly connected to the religious activity of the temple. When we come to our next sermon series, in just a few weeks we're going to open up what we're calling the Book of the Twelve, the the Minor Prophets, as we look at these 12 books that are at the conclusion of the Old Testament. There's a book that Joel Fair and I are finding helpful to us, a book that's called The Glory of God in Salvation through judgment. The story of this book and the story of our passage today is a story about the glory of God in salvation. It's true. But we have not truly understood this story unless we come to understand that even when we look at the death of Jesus, the story of the glory of God in salvation takes place in the context and through judgment. The death of Jesus is cosmic in scope. It's an act of divine judgment from which there is no rescue from death. It replaces the work of the temple and Jesus becomes the center of worship and sacrifice and access to God. And the death, it is the death of a righteous man with a divine 
source. These are the, the context into which Mark places Jesus breathing his last. Immediately after his death, Mark records the events of his burial. Mark's moving. He's been doing that this whole time. So, okay, now Jesus died. Here are the events that happened. Now let's talk about the burial, and then we'll quickly turn to the resurrection and wrap things up right away. But before giving the details of the burial, Mark does give us one more piece of information. He introduces, or perhaps reminds us of, a cast of important characters here at the end of the gospel account. Here, as we turn to considering the burial, we ought to first consider verse 40. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, the mother of Mary, the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph, and of Salome, and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him, and they were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. These three women in particular have been here throughout the events of the death of Jesus. Mark has been pointing us to them, and now. They will appear repeatedly in the events that are to come. And so he takes a second before moving from the death of Jesus and into his burial and into his resurrection to call these characters to mind. Since Galilee, they followed him, they've ministered to him, and they came up to Jerusalem with him. And there are many other women who have proved themselves to be followers of Jesus. Now think about the account of Mark that we've spent these 60 weeks rehearsing. Hearing the account uh, thus far, particularly with the account of the 12 disciples that so much of this story has, has involved as Jesus walks with them and brings them up and gives him them an increasing understanding of who he is and what he's done, one might be excused to think that there's been a journey and an experience that is exclusively of a male band of followers. But these verses are a call to us. Is that really true? Or is that just how we're remembering things? Perhaps we should go back through the Gospel of Mark and pay a little better attention that it's a woman who touches Jesus' cloak and was healed. And that woman Jesus comes to, he turns around, he could have kept walking, the healing's done, but he goes back to her and he brings her from one faith to another. It's a sacrificial gift of another woman and her tears that prepares Jesus for his burial. And wherever the story of Jesus is told, she will be remembered. It's the women who remained when all the other disciples have dispersed. They've scattered. And now they're going to minister to Jesus. They've been doing this for the years of his ministry in Galilee. And now they'll do it one more time, they think. They'll serve Jesus one more time in his burial. And one could excuse the pragmatism of the remaining 11 disciples as they scatter to their homes. I mean, that's very practical. Jesus is dead, right? What more is there to do? There's no purpose in continuing to follow around a corpse. But the devotion of these women remains even when the death of Jesus appears final. They're devoted to him. They followed him up to Jerusalem. And now they're going to follow him to the grave. Mark assures the reader that these women have been witnesses closely to the whole of the ministry of Jesus. And Mark's preparing them for us. 
He's drawing our attention to them that we might be prepared to receive them as true and valid witnesses to the resurrection. Now he introduces another character. Look with me at verse 43. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, he took carriage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now, it's, he is a member of the very council who condemned Jesus to play his, their, their part in the death of Jesus. Here, this man now plays a part in Jesus' burial. We can also point to Nicodemus. Over in John chapter 19, in a parallel account, it says that Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Joseph? Nicodemus coming to minister to Jesus. Now, there's, there's a, a warning for us, a bit of a caution to us as we make broad generalizations and say sentences like, and this is what the religious leaders did. This is what the leaders of the Jews in Jerusalem did, as if they're some sort of monolithic group. Now, it's true. There are things that the religious leaders did. There are cries that the people of Jerusalem made But there are some among them who are awaiting the kingdom. And one named Joseph took courage. And he took courage to approach Pilate for Jesus' body. Jesus' body should have been tossed upon his death into a trash heap called Gehenna, just outside the city. But Joseph of Arimathea intervenes. Now, when Joseph intervenes and asks for the body of Jesus, Pilate is going to do his due diligence. And so he calls upon the centurion. And you can see what he does. Pilate, verse 44, surprised to hear that he should have already died, summons the centurion, and he asked him whether he was already dead. Yeah, I heard his cry. It was a cry unlike any others. And all the circumstances. This was different, but it was death. And summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he'd already, he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. Here we see the central role of the centurion is to see to the execution of the man on the cross. And Jesus, and the, the centurion's final conclusion about Jesus is he is dead. We see his report. And his report runs squarely against the failed attempts of some to try to explain away the resurrection to claim that Jesus merely swooned or fainted, that he didn't actually die. But we now have two reports about this centurion that he saw the death of Jesus and it made a mark and an impact and he was even called to Pilate to to ask the question, is he dead? And the report is, he is dead. And finally, Jesus' body is laid in a tomb. The tomb, we're told, is cut out of a rock and a stone is rolled over the entrance and the people of Jerusalem and the Roman authorities have secured the death of Jesus. It worked. The work of the council, the work of Rome, the work of the centurion, the work of the executioners together and all the people who spat upon him. It's done. And he's in the tomb. Pilate and Joseph have secured the corpse behind a stone. And Mary and Mary are there. 
and they witness where the burial takes place. A significant effect of this account from Mark is that these details establish the historical reality of the death of Jesus. And that historical reality runs through his suffering into his death and his burial. These are the events of Jesus' death. Now we ought to ask, what does it mean? We've seen his death. We've seen the events that surrounded his death. And now we see him in his tomb. What does this mean? I would refer us to a message just not long ago. On Good Friday, we spent time on a parallel account from Matthew of Jesus' cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And we called that message the, cry, the word of anguish. And the simple answer to the question, what does this mean? The meaning of the death of Jesus is this. The death of Jesus is the awful wage of sin. Listen to Romans 6.23. For the wages of sin is death. Friends, before we think, some of you, I know the Romans road. I've taught other people that before. I would encourage you to write Romans 6.23 in the margin of your Bible here. Because it's not just an idea. It's not a theological term when we refer to death. We're talking about a man who expired with a cry and darkness surrounding him. We're talking about the death of a man on a cross. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This wage, this wage of death is severe. If there's anything that we can get from Mark chapter 15 is the severity of the death of Jesus. The letter of Romans brings this home to us, but it seems a bit hypothetical. It can feel a little bit distant. One of these days, sinners will receive a just reward that's called a wage. What is a wage? A wage isn't a problem. It's what you expect. I mean, I gave you something, my sin. What do I get for it? What's the reward? Death. A paycheck is coming. But the check's still in the mail. It's not coming yet. Death isn't coming for me today. So I can continue to pay in toward what's coming, but it's coming in the mail. It's a far off distant reality. But Mark chapter 15 takes that far distant reality that sinners like you and me think we don't need to worry about because the check's still in the mail. Maybe it'll get lost, right? And Mark chapter 15 says, oh no, this is what it looks like. It looks like rejection and shame. It looks like suffering in the face of the Father turned away. This week and last in Mark, we've seen the wages of sin up close, the rejection, the beatings, the mocking, the spitting. It's not a distant threat. It is presented for us in a present awful reality. Do you want to know what Romans 6.23 is talking about when it says death? talking about Mark chapter 15. How can this be? 
How does this make sense? How is Jesus the righteous one, the one who suffers so? Psalm 37 verse 25 says this, I've been young and now I'm old, yet I've not seen a righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Not in Egypt, we didn't see that. No, they weren't forsaken there, not in the wilderness, not in the face of their enemies, not even in the Babylonian captivity where the righteous finally forsaken, but rather we saw that the righteous lived by faith. All who carried, who cried out to the Lord for rescue, every single one, even those otherwise deserving judgment, all who cry out to the Lord know the consolation of the Lord. Isn't that the way it works? A righteous man doesn't die like this. He's been their refuge and their strength in the day of trouble. And here we have a man an actually righteous man, not a man otherwise undeserving, an actual righteous man on a cross crying out to God. And this righteous man is forsaken. He's alone. There's no response from heaven except for darkness. The only further suffering, and ultimately what's waiting this righteous man as he cries out? Death. This makes it all the more astonishing to us. In all of human history, all who have cried for help and received it, every single one who have cried out to the Lord for help, are they themselves sinners. All of history. Thousands upon thousands crying out for help. And the Lord drawing near. Every single one a sinner. No one has been deserving of rescue. Not one. To not even one has God been obligated to condescend and draw near to the one who is suffering to turn his face in mercy. But here on the cross, crying out to his God and Father in heaven, we finally have, for the first time in all of human history, a righteous man suffering. And his cry is the cry of a righteous man that is met with silence. It's met with God turning his back and hiding his face. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. As A.W. Pink puts it, he who was the Holy One, whose own abhorrence of sin was infinite, who was purity incarnate, was made sin for us. You know, I think of the stories that we've seen in Mark. We've seen people rescued. We've seen people crying out. We've seen a blind man crying out for the Christ who's passing by, and Jesus turns aside, and he goes to the man, and he heals him. We see the deaf hearing. We see the lame walking. We see all kinds of disease. We see God drawing close to the needy in their cry. And we can begin to feel like being humans like them, being people who have suffered like some in these accounts who have suffered. We can begin to be like, well, of course he did. I mean, it's the nice thing to do. I mean, just kind of being a human, they kind of deserve that, right? And we forget the reality that every single one who cried out were they themselves sinners. 
There's not one thing about a single one of the miracles recorded for us in the Gospel of Mark that obligated Jesus to come to the earth, let alone turn aside from his path to talk to him or to heal them. But this is the great exchange. I truly believe that we see Jesus, and one of the things that you see when you, you watch Jesus in all of the Gospels, he seems like a tired man. He seems like somebody who has to sit down by a well while his disciples go into town to get food from him. We see him often go off to be with the Father after a season of ministry. And I am convinced that one of the reasons why he is tired is every time he touches one of these, every time he reaches out to one of these that are sinners, and he brings the mercy of God to bear in miracle upon his life, he knows what it requires. Because not one of these and not one of us deserves have God coming close to us by some sort of merit on our account. But he knows what it's going to take to perform these miracles and what it's going to take to hear the cries of anyone here at Cross Point Coast. He's going to have to take upon himself our sin, their sin, and then he does. This is the story of the great exchange. The story unfolding before us is the gospel of Mark. The righteous man suffered the wage of sin because he's taken upon himself the sin of those whom he will redeem. All those who place their faith in him, all those will become righteous through him. This is the great exchange. There's a lie that's worked its way throughout all of human history. It's the essence of the lie and the pride of sin. It's the lie that even if there is a God, let's just suppose for a moment in 2022, that there is a God. Even if God does see us, and what he sees is sin, even if God has established a right and a wrong way to live, what gives him the right? We'll never suffer any justice from God for our sin. And this lie isn't new to 2022. It's run its way throughout all of history. One of my favorite psalms, Psalm 36, says this at the beginning, transgression speaks to the wicked deep in his heart. There's no fear of God before his eyes. He flatters himself in his own eyes that his iniquity cannot be found out and hated. Oh, I may do a variety of things, and if you examine my heart, you'd find some measure of evil But there's no hatred, there's no wrath, there's no judgment coming. Come on. Satan himself tempted Eve in the garden with this exact lie. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. The serpent doesn't even bother with the argument about the morality of taking the fruit from the tree. He drops that argument very quickly. He simply moves on. Your iniquity will not be found out and hated. But the cross destroys the lie. The Lord does see sin. He saw our sin. And the Father, upon the willing and humble Son, places our sin on the back of Jesus on the cross so that He turns his back in judgment, leaving Jesus to suffer the full weight of our sin, our wage, upon the cross. He saw it, and he judged it. 
If the cry of Christ is a glimpse at the awful wage of sin, is it not also a glimpse at the glorious grace of the substance of our salvation? You see, our salvation is not an abstract concept. It's not an ethereal, check is in the mail sort of hope. The check was delivered, and it was delivered to Jesus. That was the wage of sin. And in that moment, he purchased for us the ground of grace moment. Not only was his body broken, not only was his blood shed, his person was forsaken so that we would not be. We have a glorious grace moment for you and me in the place of sinners, all who would place their faith in him. This isn't just a sermon about death. It is. Even before we come to the resurrection, it's already a sermon about my life. That's how my life was purchased. The title of this message is The Death. And I thought about that. I don't think long about sermon titles. They normally are just, you know, whatever it happens to be about. And I thought about this one, though. Is it the death? Or is it like the death of Jesus to distinguish it from other deaths? And I thought to myself, no, no, this is the death. Because this is the death of death. So that there's no other deaths to talk about for the redeemed. Because Jesus died in our place, there is but one death. And we are right to call it the death. There's no death that remains for those who are in Christ Jesus. The call to all who hear is to trust in the sacrifice of Jesus for the forgiveness of our sin, to lay down your life and take up your life in Jesus Christ. Another way to put it would be this. Hear me. Lay down your death. Lay down your death. Trust that the Lord has died your death for you so that there is one death and it's already been died. So for you, for you who believe, you who trust in the grace of the cross and are forgiven, there's no death for you, no judgment, no darkness, no turning away for you. For all those who believe, it is because Jesus died in your place that you don't have to be afraid anymore. You can suffer. You can even suffer in this world for the sake of Christ. You can even take up your cross upon you like Simeon, like, I don't remember his name, Simon of Cyrene. You can take up your cross and you can follow after him. You don't have to be afraid. Because you know at the end of this suffering you may die, but there's no death. You may expire, you may go with a hymn or a great cry, but there's no judgment for you. There's no dark cloud that hovers over you. There's only grace secure for you. So we can endure many trials, but we will never endure the final death. You've heard it sung, perhaps you've sung along. You'll never know. I'll never know how much it costs. Yeah. It's true. I'll never know. I will never experience, I will never have a tangible, experiential reality of death. Judgment, the wrath of God upon me 
for my sin. That death has already been died. You can endure trials. You can endure many things. But for those who are in Christ, there is only boldness. There's only hope. There's only joy that's unshakable for you, grounded in this sacrificial love of Jesus on display for us today. Do you want to know what the love of Jesus looks like? Do you want to know what the love of Jesus feels like? Mark 15. Be grounded there and know the love, the sacrificial, life-giving, death-dying love of Jesus for you. And as we'll see next week, Jesus himself, he will rise. He will rise victorious over death, victorious over death. He himself, we gather today on Resurrection Sunday to remember that not even death could hold him. Death is defeated so that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we can know my life is secure. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would would mess with us. You would work on us, that you would interrupt our our, our line of reasoning and our rebellious, uh, our blind, our foolish pride. The check is still in the mail. No, it's been delivered in Christ. If we'll only take hold of by faith what you have for us here. I pray that you would mess with us in such a way that we cannot think that we're safe in a right theology. But Lord, taking hold of what is rightly true about our God, a right theology in this scripture, we can cling to it. We can be humbled by it. We can rejoice in. We can sing with joy. We can be bold. We can proclaim without fear. Lord, we can be unshaken. We can be unashamed. Lord, I pray that you would work these things in your church that there would be an actual transformation of our lives because of the grace of Jesus Christ. And if there is someone here this morning who has not yet believed, still clinging to the idea that perhaps they won't be found out, that the Lord does not see, and if he sees, he doesn't care, or that they are beyond rescue and beyond hope, I pray that they would see the depths to which the Lord Jesus has gone to rescue There is hope. I pray that you would apply your grace to that one to submit in faith and belief. Lord, we trust you for your work in the midst of the whole of the congregation this morning in the name of the crucified and risen one, in the name of Jesus Christ, the name of the one whom we await and we will surely see him. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.